buttoned that up. I'm very relaxed, as you can tell. I'm stretching. I'm not sure, quite sure how you do it. Are you still, you're still um, working as a brain surgeon in, out of, in and out of Sydney? Yeah, just uh, in Sydney, unfortunately. It used to be in and out of Sydney. Like almost half the year I was overseas operating, but now it's just purely Sydney. Do you still do you do a lot of work with that? You, you've got, because you've got your own foundation, haven't you? Yeah. Do you still get, with COVID, do you get much opportunity to get over there and... No, it's not good. COVID's been terrible. I mean, they talk about the collateral casualties of COVID, and I think it's pretty well underestimated how many people have died, become ill, had quality of life issues affected by COVID. It's just, uh, it's pretty devastating. So, you know, I used to operate on kids overseas who had tumours that no one else could take out, and I still get those emails coming in every week, and I can't get to them. So, you know, a kid died last week, and I'm sure I could have saved if I'd been able to go overseas. It's pretty bad because um because one of the questions i wanted to ask you is uh because we were talking to oh fuck i forgot his name who's the five area blow ollie ollie is it the uh ollie's one that puts in touch yeah. yeah and and he was saying you um they say you're a bit of a hero in the space because you will operate on well it's, it's it's like there's two sides of the coin but they say you'll operate on people that most other surgeons won't operate on. Yeah, I, I guess I've developed a reputation for that. It's not a reputation that I really wanted to get because I thought that I'll, what I was doing was pretty mainstream, but it turns out that um, uh, probably 90% of the cases I do are cases that everyone else has considered too hard or too futile. And that's the rub. That's the controversy. So if it's too hard, then... You know, they say, well, I've got skills that other people don't have, and that's fine. But when I operate on someone who they consider futile, in other words, it's cancer, you know, they're in their 70s, really isn't worth it, is it? And I operate on those people, and they do well. That's when it becomes a little bit sort of acrimonious with my colleagues, and that's where I get the label of being a bit of a maverick and a bit of a cowboy. But bottom line is I don't think I'm a maverick. I don't think I'm a cowboy. I just operate on people... Uh, who want to be, uh, who don't want to die yet. And I get good results and bad results. The good results are great and, and the bad results are terrible. But, uh, but, you know, most people, well, not most people, almost all people won't resent the fact that they had surgery, even if it was uh, unsuccessful because, you know, they clearly had this will to live still. They weren't prepared to die and they, uh, they knew the odds and they took a chance and even though it didn't work they don't feel badly about it because isn't that i can't imagine um being in that position where they're like oh look mate we can't we can operate but there's not much chance so fuck it just go and make peace with dying and uh we'll catch you around i don't know if i could deal with that i would be like no somebody give it a go <laughs> well uh look i feel the same way and a lot of people who aren't looking down the barrel feel the same way. But until you're actually in that position, it's like you guys, until you're actually in the position of, you know, facing death, you know, head on, it's very hard to know how you'd react. I mean, I'd like to think that I'd have the courage to keep fighting and that life is very precious and all those 
uh, cliches that we use about, you know, facing death. But, gee, a lot of people don't do it. A lot of people do give up. And a lot of people listen to those conservative doctors who say there's nothing else can be done and they just accept it, roll over and die. Uh, I would like to think that I would question it. I'd like to think that I'd have the courage to, you know, uh, go somewhere else for surgery or, you know consult some maverick somewhere who would give me that 1% chance, but no, a lot of people don't. Uh, and I think a lot of it is all due to, I don't know, it's, uh, you know, doctors have this very authoritative sort of role and position, and it's almost like some people accept their word as gospel. So, you know, once your doctor says nothing can be done, it's like, oh, okay, fine, you're, you're, you're the skilled one, you're the one who knows what he's talking about, and... Uh, I'll just listen to you and accept it. And, uh, you know, there are others who just won't accept it, and they're the ones who come to see me. Is that like a... Um, do, they, do, you, do you notice a difference when people get told, you know, hey, look, this is probably it, um, we can't help you, and, and their coping mechanisms, not a, not a placebo effect, but like kind of the opposite, they just give up and, and they deteriorate quite quickly? Oh, no, that's well documented. No, no, that's not bullshit. That's real. Uh, I guess an, another way of asking the question is, can you will yourself to die and can you will yourself to live? And the answer is absolutely yes. No, no, there are people who I've seen personally who didn't want to live. You know, like I, I remember looking after a sailor who was in the Sydney to Hobart yacht race. Uh, a boom came around, hit him on the back of the head. He came in uh, completely quadriplegic. And uh, he was on a ventilator. We could have kept him alive for uh, you know, years, uh, but he willed himself to die. And I've seen other people will, will themselves to die. And, and conversely, I've seen other people who really should have died with terminal illnesses and terrible aggressive cancers, and they seem to live longer than, uh, than they should simply because they, they've got this amazing will to live. Uh, you know, you can call it placebo. That's just a name for it, but... Uh, the power of the brain uh, is something that is, uh, it is a phenomenon and it's untapped. It's considered, Barack Obama uh, uh, decided to fund mapping of the human brain simply because he knew that it was the last frontier and that tapping and mapping and understanding the human brain could be way more beneficial for humanity than you know, exploring space, for example. Uh, so I had the privilege of being the first Australian non-politician to address the US Congress on this very issue, that the brain is this uh, amazing organ, we, it's, it has huge untapped potential, it can do things like kill you or make you live, it can do things like you know, get rid of cancer. Believe it or not, there's even a study that shows that if you're taking a tablet you, you think might be thinning out your blood. Uh, so it's a sugar tablet. You're told that it thins out your blood, and they do blood tests on you after you take that sugar tablet. Your blood is thinner. Uh, and so that's crazy. It's crazy. That's how powerful the mind is. And, uh, yeah, it's an untapped potential. We, have, we, we barely know the tip of the iceberg when it comes to knowledge about the brain. Let me jump in, Mick. So um, I, I'll jump in and steer this conversation down a complete rabbit hole, and then Mex will pull us back online. So before we before we go further than this, have you been tracking Elon Musk's Neuralink? Yes, uh, for several reasons. One, because I respect the man, uh, and I always like 
listening to what he has to say. He thinks outside the box. Uh, and secondly, because uh, we now have software that can uh, map the functionality of the brain, not just the, not an, not an image that shows the structure of the brain, but an image that shows how the brain is functioning. And I strongly believe that Neuralink is going to need that software. So I think there's going to be future collaboration between Elon Musk and myself and my company because, uh, you know, this whole concept of brain-machine interfacing is pretty phenomenal. Uh, and uh, he's already tapped into it. He wants to sort of uh, put grids on the brain uh, that then sense what the brain's thinking or what the brain is, wants you to do connect that to a machine and that machine will do it for you. So this has huge potential for people who are quadriplegic or have spinal injuries of any description uh, because it means that uh, instead of trying to regenerate the spinal cord, which is something that we haven't been able to do successfully at all, uh, we can now bypass that spinal cord and just use machine brain interfacing. Uh, there is a, actually there are videos online where you see a person with a grid on their brain in the language area and they are thinking they want to say something. They're not saying it, okay? They're not mouthing it. They're thinking uh, something like the sun is hot, you know, something like that. And the machine says the sun is hot. So these machines can actually pick up your thoughts, not only your actions. So you know, I've seen the videos also of BMI, brain machine interfacing, where the, the patient thinks they want to pick up a cup and the robot picks up the cup and even though that's pretty fascinating and phenomenal it's not quite as phenomenal as someone thinking a thought and the machine uh, coming out and actually saying it. Uh, so yeah I have a vested interest in it because I strongly believe he's going to need our program to know where to put those grids because our program can tell you now exactly where that part of the uh, that part, you know, what parts of the brain are, are, are important for different functions of the brain? I, I mean, mate, I, it excites me, but it also makes me super nervous. Like, from someone like me oh, no. listening to you talk like that, I'm like, we are a generation away from mind control. Oh my god! You think about RoboCop. RoboCop is real now. <laughs> so you know, one of my favourite movies, but. Uh, yeah, so that whole idea, of if you can keep the brain alive, there is potential to build a body around that brain based on BMI, brain-machine interfacing. That's phenomenal. So we effectively are one generation away from living forever. How do you... No, I, don't, I don't think it is. I think it's this generation. I think in your lifetime, maybe not in mine, but in your lifetime, you'll see uh, robots controlled by the human brain. How do you legislate that or how do you control that for the human population? There's already 7 billion of us. Do they, is it the rich are going to get this? Is it the terminally ill will get this? I mean, how, how will it be conceptualized in, into society, I suppose? Yeah, no, there are already ethicists considering things like that. Uh, because you're right, it does have ethical issues. But if you look back in history, you'll always see that the rich always get it first. I mean, look at healthcare, look at clean water, uh, look at vaccinations. It's always the rich countries or the developed countries and the rich in the rich countries who get the uh, priorities. And then, of course, it trickles down. So that's not something that's new. I'm not saying it's fair or it's, it's right, but it's, it's certainly seen in history. 
and in terms of augmenting the brain, well, again, on a very simplistic level, just think about this. What is education? Education is augmenting your brain. It's basically making your brain better. And so one step further is maybe a, uh, augmenting your brain through machines or through, you know, I'm using uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation to improve my patients with brain tumors who have had strokes or deficits. And TMS is uh, essentially a magnet, non-invasive, incredibly low risk profile that will stimulate the brain and improve plasticity and make the brain more malleable so that uh, uh, you know you can compensate for deficits, neurological deficits. Well, TMS technicians who have been around for three decades will tell you they give themselves TMS before they have to write a grant because it makes them more intelligent. So there are intelligence uh, networks. Uh, there are networks or hubs in the brain that we can now identify with this software that we can potentially stimulate to make someone more intelligent. And that has huge ethical issues as well. But again, the ethicists boil it down to a very simple fact, and that is that throughout, throughout uh, mankind's history, we have always tried to augment our intelligence. If it's through, not through education, it's through using aids or using you know, different techniques, and this is just one step further. Uh, but it is, it's, it's fascinating. It's a fascinating issue. Uh, and uh, uh, and like I say, it's here. It's here now. You guys are going to see it in your lifetime for sure. Maybe we're going to have to get Jess to start, or maybe me before I do TMS. Um, I can't believe it, mate. My, my mind's blown away. The The implications of, of that... Wow. I've got to take two seconds. <laughs> No, it has huge implications. We're already in conversation with DOD uh, in the US because, uh, you know, as you guys are acutely aware, uh, unfortunately, returned servicemen, uh, there's a certain percentage will get PTSD. And they've often wondered why that happens. I mean, why is it that you send 100 soldiers to war, 90 of them come back and they're perfectly fine, they assimilate back into the community, they don't have any issues and 10% have terrible issues of PTSD. Well, it's a huge burden on society uh, in terms of financial cost uh, and personal cost. Uh, so it wouldn't be good if we could identify people who have the potential to get PTSD, modify their brains so they don't get PTSD, or identify them so they don't go to the front line. And that will be a huge cost-saving and personal saving uh, for, uh, for countries. Uh, so our software, our software has potential uh, to identify those people. We can now map a brain and pick if you are depressed, anxious, uh, have obsessive compulsive disorder, PTSD, uh, autism, et cetera, et cetera. So this is a, a huge step forward in how to map the brain, how to diagnose mental illnesses, and then potentially how to treat and prevent mental illnesses. Uh, as the next few, uh, as the future line, it's huge implications. They're going to take that up. If you think about the average cost of a soldier that comes back with PTSD in Australia, um, their their payouts are in excess of six figures. Uh, you know, the comp the the cost of a of a class A pension is in excess of eighty percent of their rate wage for the rest of their life. 
yeah. and they were talking about percentages of PTSD in Australia. Um, we've, we spoke about this before, but this statistic was pretty pretty fun uh, and interesting for me, is that Fallujah vets in America who were fought in some of the bloodiest campaigns in Iraq, they, their, their PTSD rates were about like 12, 15%, something like that. Whereas Australian veterans are coming back with PTSD rates who didn't fight in, in those particularly intense uh, traumatic com- like theatres in excess of 30-something percent. So, so there's other two things going on there. We've uh, we're not training them and we're not preparing them, or our, our, we're not uh, maybe our pre-selection process is poor, or there's a little bit of fraudulent activity going on. Yeah, one or other, or all of the all of the above. Yeah. But it is a huge burden on society financially and socio-economically, because you know you think about these people; these are good people. They're can you imagine if what they can contribute to society if they came back and assimilated and used all those skills that they learned in the army and by going overseas and they'd have an amazing perspective on life? Well, we're losing them. And they could be potential CEOs, they could be potential politicians who could actually contribute a huge amount to our society, but they're lost. Well, they're lost. It's, it's a terrible burden. Uh, so if we can come up with a program that could identify those people who are going to get it, and either prevent them from getting it because we don't send them to the front line or give them TMS to get rid of that part of the brain that is dysfunctional. I mean, it's a huge gain on society. And, and we're, we're right at the, the uh, infancy stage of doing that. It's, it's even further than that. We're probably at the adolescent stage. We're almost there. Yeah, I mean, it sounds amazing. Oh, the only hurdle I can see is when you, you start to identify brain patterns that would stop someone according to the new barriers from joining the defense force and then they, they find out that 90 percent of their recruiting campaigns are targeted towards those type of people were easily malleable what is def- what does defense do then oh my god that, again that's a huge ethical issue you think about this if we've got a program that can tell you how your brain is functioning and we do then we can diagnose things like not only depression and anxiety, but we can tell if you're an ambitious person or a happy person or a sad person, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I can think of a day where a company goes, uh, you know, instead of doing one of those emotional tests on you to tell you, give you an emotional profile, they say, oh, you need to have a scan. And so, uh, you know, you're gonna be picking people based on their scan. So if they've got a scan that looks abnormal, you know, see you later Uh, but again the hope there is that the abnormal scan can be made normal in other words brains can be normalized and made more uh, efficient using interventions now TMS is just one of them there's another thing called you know direct current stimulation there's all sorts of ways we can modify modify brain functionality Uh, and uh, I'm sorry to say, but it is here. It's here to stay. It's the way of the future. And it's no different to identifying a good employee based on an emotional quotient or an IQ or a HSC result. And it's the same thing. You know, you're, you're handpicking your person based on whatever you've got available to you to tell you if that person's going to be a good employee or not. Uh, so we're just becoming a little bit more sophisticated about it now, that's all. 
There's nowhere to hide. There's absolutely nowhere to hide with that. <laughs> so just um, circling back a little bit um, on on sort of servicemen and then coming back from overseas, um, there's, uh, have you heard much from uh, Dr. Mark Gordon? He does the Warrior Angel Foundation stuff in America. I mean, he was on Joe Rogan a, a little bit, and he talks about, um, what is it, a repetitive blast injury and concussive traumas that, that are dam- damaging the brain and, and yeah. then therefore representing or some of those signs and symptoms present themselves as PTSD and then they are treating with hormonal stimul like hormone replacement. Is that is that bullshit? Is that something you've had I know I've probably just dumped it on you now, but No, I haven't heard of him. I haven't heard the podcast, but I can tell you now that I agree with him hundred percent already. Because it goes something like this. Remember I've already made the statement that the human brain is an untapped potential. We have no idea how it works. You know, we it's, the information and knowledge about the brain is like the tip of the iceberg. It's amazing. You think about this, just, just by way of example. About 10% of people with autism are savants. You know, they're these amazing people who have amazing memories. They can memorize a telephone book, for example. Sometimes two telephone books. So they can memorize the numbers, the addresses, and names of all these people in the telephone book and recall it just like that. Joe Smith, oh, 114, you know, Crescent Avenue, you know, immediately. Phone number 999-47, like that. That's, that's how brilliant these people are, they're savants. Okay, if you do an MRI scan of their brain, not this recent scan that I'm talking about, but a normal MRI scan of their brain, it looks exactly like yours and my brain. So it looks like a normal brain. And what that should tell you is that all of us have the potential to memorize a phone book. So there's this huge untapped potential of the human brain. Okay, and, that's, and we don't know how to tap that potential. We, don't, we have not, no idea. So when someone like Mark Gordon comes along and says, look, I believe you know, some of the brain dysfunction or functionality is due to this, this, and this. If anyone were to stand up and say, you're an idiot, you're bullshit, it's bullshit, that's the person who's the idiot because Really, we have no idea. There's a thing called audiometry modification where I was talking to a lady last night whose son was basically mentally retarded. He had psychomotor retardation. He was four years of age. No doctors could pick what was wrong with him. Uh, You know, he'd been on all these different medications. They diagnosed ADHD, all this kind of stuff. Anyway, she heard about this person who does audiometries, this or that. And so... In other words, she felt that she could modify his behavior through audiometry, you know, through his uh, hearing. And, uh, and anyway, did all these treatments. I don't know what she did, but bottom line is that he now, he became a normal kid after that. Uh, so, so when Mark says something like, you know, PTSD is a reflection of constant bombardment of noises or explosions in someone's ear. It's not inconceivable that that input, that audiological input, has modified the brain network so that it becomes dysfunctional. Uh, You know, I don't know about it. I've never heard about it. But it's to me, it sounds pretty 
you know, it, it could be real. Yeah, because they... And I'd be very open-minded to that. Yeah, because they talk about the... Uh, I mean, there's the explosions that go through and reverberate through people's brains from either experiencing the explosion uh, or yep. firing large-caliber anti-material rifles, anti-tank rifles. Um, yeah. And he sort of put it. What did he put it to? It's like uh, footballers and concussive, you know, trauma from tackling and constantly getting concussions and stuff like that. Right, right. But yeah, it's just well, no, that's well documented. You know, concussions from trauma is well documented. You can actually see structural abnormalities of the brain. You know, they get little sort of uh, neuronal uh, breaks and uh, and disruption of the uh, of the long axons uh, of the brain. But uh, audiological trauma, in other words, noise affecting the functionality of the brain is not something that has been documented before. But uh, again, I, I don't think that's inconceivable. I really, I really don't. Uh, I think that's very conceivable that that could affect your brain functionality. Yeah, I just, um, and he talks about that. I think he, he's more with, the, with that, that uh, physical trauma of the concussions and the knocking the brain around i mean even wearing the helmets that the boys wear when they're doing it is reverberating shockwaves through the brain that they keep saying um and he does it by they they replace uh they say it destroys some of the i mean it focuses i don't know where he said um but is it the pituitary gland and, and the upregulation of hormones and he replaces them with with testosterone replacement therapy stuff. Oh yeah, that's nothing. New. That's nothing new. They've they've done hormonal studies on the pituitary gland and it's uh, and what it secretes on those NFL footballers. And uh, I, I forget the figures now, but up to sixty percent of them have abnormalities of their stalk of the pituitary axis because of these constant reverberations and concussions. So no, that's not new. That's that's actually well documented. Oof, that's good. Oh, we'll see how we go. I think with the summit we're... Because, I mean, the Australian Army doesn't recognise or the Australian government doesn't recognise repetitive blast or concussive trauma. You have to have lost consciousness for 30 minutes or more for them to say, okay, you've suffered a brain injury. Yeah. And you can't blame them because that's what the literature says. Yep. I mean, if you read those conservative textbooks on head injuries and if you speak to most doctors, they, they strongly believe that because that's what we were taught. So they're just going with the narrative, the current narrative. Uh, you know, you, you need people to think outside the box. You need people to accept change. You need people to uh, be a little bit disruptive in their thinking to accept other theories as to why people might get PTSD or brain injuries. And you know, typically the medical fraternity is not that. They're a very conservative bunch of people. So too are politicians. What it they? takes about about ten years. Don't don't. Uh, it, well, it, nutritional science Fuck is the only time that I've ten years. Are you kidding? Like takes fucking longer. Several generations for them to change. <laughs> like, you know, just and that's no, no. Ten years is no, no, no. You're looking at generations before people change their thinking. I mean, look at me. I'm you know, widely vilified by my colleagues and condemned and persecuted simply because I came up with this new idea of operating on the brain through small keyhole incisions. And you now you. Uh, patients do better, less trauma, better cosmetic result, uh, less collateral damage to the brain. It's a no-brainer. And yet, uh, you know, look at look what's happening to me. So, no, 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 I'm sorry. You can never be a prophet in your own lifetime or in your own uh, country. It, it takes several generations to change people's thinking. 
and that's people in general, to change the thinking of a group of people who are by, by definition conservative, you're looking at several generations. Yeah. It's a scary thought when it comes to brains, oh, in, in this space anyway, brains and soldiers, that's, that's the one bit that makes me nervous when current um, government standards say no, there's there's nothing wrong with your brain, and then you, I personally start to notice. Like I'm only 35, I've noticed like words in my vocabulary are slowly fading away, and I mean maybe yeah. maybe I I need more mental stimulation. I don't think so. Well, I think we work too much as it is, but that's one thing I'm conscious of is not letting it slip. So I'm nervous that in 20, 30 years, when it's too late to do anything, then they start to accept. Oh yeah, maybe there's some blast damage to your brain from, oh, yeah. from back in the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm sorry. For them to accept that, it's going to take more than your lifetime probably. Because, you know, they get all these expert witnesses. They get all these doctors who sit in their ivory towers. They're not, they have no, they're not in touch with uh, the common man. And they say to them, oh, we want your expert opinion about, you know, could this soldier have uh, received, uh, you know, traumatic injuries to his brain just by being in the service? and going to the front line and, you know, the doctors read their books and they'll speak to other conservative doctors and they'll say no, no, and they'll support the government. And no, it's, I'm sorry, but it's going to take a long time to get people to change their thinking. Yeah. This, this is very similar to the army in their dogmatic uh, approach. So, we, you know, you come up with a new tactic, technique or procedure for the, for the current war zone you're in. You say, well, look, hey, what we've been doing doesn't work. It's getting people blown up. How about we do this? And they keep referring back to the doctrine. You're like, but somebody only ever just wrote that down. Some it didn't. That didn't materialize. God didn't come down from the mountain and give that to us. Some omnificent being. Somebody has wrote that down somewhere, and now it's written. In, now it's gospel. Yeah, that's right. It's called dogma, and it's the one thing that you know that unfortunately holds us back from making progress. Dogma. And you're absolutely right. Some person one day just wrote something down and suddenly it becomes gospel and no one questions it. And then one day someone comes up with questions and, hang on, why are we doing it that way? And, and they show that it's better. And, oh, my God, you know, when you start questioning dogma, you start ruffling feathers and, and, you, uh, and you change people's eminence. And, you know, the, I heard a great talk from a guy who talks about change and the two things that are most resistant to change are age and eminence so you've got these people who have become eminent and authoritative and their whole raison d'etre is because they expound this theory and then some young buck comes along and questions it oh my god you are asking for trouble so uh, you're not going to get old people or eminent people to change because it's their, it's their raison d'etre. It's their reason for being. Yeah, they were getting... This was the same stuff that... Uh, was it Richard Dawkins? They started a foundation for... Uh, it was the Four Horsemen and they started a foundation for priests trying to leave um, the church. They found out that they lived their whole life. At six, they're 60 years old and they maybe found that God wasn't for them and wasn't real. And now they're like, but I've just been a priest for 60 years and they're still working as priests. And they're like, I can't shift my whole mindset. They have whole, yeah, I couldn't believe it. The whole purpose yep. has been, you know, yeah, expanding that theory. 
All right. They're just going to keep. So we've got we've got thirty years, and and people in mine and Max's lifetime have lucked out because they won't change anymore. Is there anything we can do like day to day without going TMS or anything? Is is there is there supplements? Is there exercises you can do to keep your brain younger, healthier, more active? Oh yeah, no, that, you know, again, there's literature to support lots of things that can actually improve brain health. Uh, if you categorise them into several major groups, the first one is sleep. And that has been shown definitively to improve brain health. So it's very difficult to actually identify an exact number that is ideal sleep. But for young people, it's probably anywhere between eight and nine hours. For most people, it's somewhere between six and eight hours. And for older people, it's probably somewhere between five and six or seven hours. Uh, so you certainly need less sleep the older you get, but someone at your age, in your 30s and your peak of life, you should be getting anywhere between six and eight hours sleep a night. The next question that's asked about sleep is, is too much sleep bad for you? And the answer is actually yes. There's pretty good literature to show that any more than 10 hours sleep a night is actually bad for you. It's not good for you. Uh, so ideally, uh, sleep will keep your brain optimal. The next one is diet. And this is incredibly uh, burgeoning at the moment. This whole theory about how food, you know, you are what you eat, all that kind of stuff. We used to think it was a bit of a housewife's tale that, you know, it didn't really matter that much. But now it's been proven beyond any doubt that uh, what you eat is actually what uh, what you are. And so if you eat poorly uh, or if you eat the wrong foods or if you take too many antibiotics and change your microbiome, uh, you know, your gut uh, bacteria, uh, then you can really adversely affect your brain. But listen to this. This will really fascinate you. The current theory on the cause of Parkinson's disease is that it's all about an abnormal microbiome. So these gut bacteria that are abnormal uh, get to the brain through the vagus nerve, affect the dopamine-releasing uh, cells and give you Parkinson's. And there's actually evidence where if you cut the vagus nerve, you can actually treat Parkinson's. If you modify the microbiome, you can treat Parkinson's. So, oh my God, it's just, it's huge. This whole area of what you eat, making your brain healthy. Uh, and the next one, of course, is uh, exercise. Uh, it's been shown clearly that exercise will improve memory. Uh, again, what is too much and too little. Well, it's been sort of agreed upon that about three times a week, uh, uh, in other words, about 90 minutes a week of intensive exercise. So three times a week, 30 minutes each time, uh, with an, another 30 minutes uh, warming up and cooling down uh, is probably the ideal amount of exercise. Uh, brain aerobics another one and uh, there's a good study to show that if you learn a language a new language or a musical instrument after the age of I'm sorry I forget I forget now but it's either 40 or 60 then you can stave off uh, dementia for several years Uh, and that's just the whole concept of the brain being a an organ like any other organ like a muscle that needs to be exercised and if you exercise your brain you can keep it functioning better for longer uh, and then there's the concept of toxins. Uh, <laughs> this is, yeah, this is a bit controversial. Uh, 
like you know exposure to EMF, for example, electromagnetic frequencies or electromagnetic radiation. Uh, does that cause brain cancer? Does it cause brain uh, disease of any description? What about other toxins like uh, Agent Orange and uh, nitrites and nit nitrates? And uh, uh, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Uh, all a little bit controversial because it's not good studies. It's very hard to do a double-blinded placebo-controlled study by giving a group of people a toxin and another group uh, a placebo. So, uh, but at least put it out there that you know there are some things that are very bad for your brain. Well, well shown. Alcohol, for example. There used to be that narrative that two glasses of wine a night was actually good for you. Uh, or, you know, two servings of alcohol a day is actually good for you. Well, that's fucking bullshit now. Uh, a recent study uh -huh. sanctioned by the WHO <laughs> has shown that, and this was looking at like 3,000 articles on alcohol and brain function, brain health, and it showed that the ideal amount of alcohol is zero. I'm sorry. So, uh, yeah, now alcohol is a terrible neurotoxin. Smoking is bad for your brain. I mean, anyway, the list goes on and on and on. But if you look at all those categories, yeah, if you try and improve your brain health using all those different categories, you will you will keep it healthier for longer. Mate, you've just given us the world's best uh, advertising piece for the app. So our, our app um, is, is a proactive mental health app, and it's all about getting people sleeping better, um, eating better, training or moving their body, and, and there's personal growth in there too, which is kind of learning new hobbies and stuff. So we'll just take the last 10 minutes and use it as their ad for the next year or so. <laughs> yeah, but I bet you you cut out the alcohol bit. 100%. Yeah, we'll, we'll leave that out for a minute. We'll leave that. But that, um, I want to come back to this, but that, that, that would be an issue, wouldn't it? Where if you get a bunch of uh, heart researchers or the, the Heart Foundation pushes out, hey, we've done a study, red wine's really good for your heart, and then brain surgeons or neuroscientists come out and go, uh, we've done a study and says alcohol is really bad for your brain. And then where do, what, do, what do people believe? Is that the wine thing? Are we? Is it still being fought back and forward or is it just two different departments going, I say yes, you say no? Uh, I, think, I think this last article is pretty definitive. You know, it was, yeah, it was a huge study looking at thousands of articles on brain health and alcohol and, yeah, it came out saying zero amount of alcohol is good for you. Yeah, no, it sounds right. I wonder if they come up with a new Just person. Remember, you know, the, the whole concept of fake news has been around for centuries. And, uh, I mean, Trump will be, go down in the annals of history as being the, uh, as being the inventor of the term fake news. But remember, fake news was used by Hitler and others. And uh, so this whole concept of fake news is something that... I think it was, it's good that we all think about it because you can't believe anything that you hear, you know. They say you can't believe anything you hear and only half of what you see. Well, you know, with Adobe Photoshop and all those sort of things, you can't believe anything you see now either. It's like, I don't know, I feel sorry for people because it, it's, you know, you're just bombarded with fake news. I mean, you know, the fact that the meat industry, you know, red meat's bad for you. I'm sorry, but it's bad for you. And, uh, but the red meat industry, uh, they're, uh, they sponsor all these different uh, societies. I'm not going to name them because I don't want to sort of have a contract out on me. But, <laughs> but the, the bottom line is that many of those societies or many of those uh, action groups that say, oh, you've got to eat you know, two servings of red meat a week and all this kind of stuff, they're, they're actually sponsored by the red meat industry. Uh, so you've, you've got to take everything you hear with a grain of salt that... Uh, uh, 
I think that's the thing. I think that's the commodity going into the future is if you can sell truth and be and prove like, like where people can come and trust your opinion and what you say, that is the new commodity of the future. I think if you can sell truth. Yeah, I've been voted Australia's most trusted person for many, many years in a row. And it's a great, you know, I used to think, oh, shit, I'd much rather be, you know, the most handsome bachelor or, you know, <laughs> this or that, or, you know, the most eligible. This, But uh, when, I, when I distill that and think about it, it's a great accolade because what it means is that actually people trust, trust me. And, you know, the reason they trust me is because I'm acutely honest and I... Uh, you know, I'm not politically correct and I say things that get me into trouble. And But at least, even if I polarise society, at least they go, well, you know, we don't, we don't like what he's saying. We don't like him as a person, but at least he's telling the truth. Uh, so, yeah, look, you know, when they came out with that list of Australia's most trusted people, there were people on it that I, uh, that I thought, shit, they trust me more than that person. And... You know, it's because you can't trust politicians anymore and you can't trust people who are paid by this or have this particular role or whose eminence depends on this or that and because everything is tainted by your own sort of... Uh, uh, your own needs and your own sort of interests as opposed to, you know, the greater good. Uh, so, uh, yeah, no, that, that's, uh, that's the unfortunate thing about society today and social media is not helping... Uh, when you look at someone's Instagram page and you see that they're living this ideal life, it kind of makes you a bit depressed because you know that your life is not that ideal. Your marriage is not as good as that. Uh, your figure's not as good as that. Uh, your experiential experience, your experiential history is not as uh, colourful as theirs. And you start thinking, oh, my God, I'm a loser. You know, I've never been to Africa and I've never, you know, swum with the whales and I, I don't have a six-pack and... You know, my marriage is falling apart. But, you know, scrape under the surface of those Instagram accounts and you'll find that uh, very few of those people have the ideal life that they portray. Uh, but the trouble is we all look at it and we all get influenced in it and we all get a bit of anxiety and I had to say a bit of depression about it as well. So, oh, it's, it's a difficult situation. I don't know how we're going to manage it. I think eventually, hopefully, people will realise that they've uh, that there's just so much falseness and so much duplicity in the world that they will start questioning everything. But then, of course, they'll question me. You know, <laughs> I don't want them to question me. <laughs> but uh, you know what I mean? It's you know, what do you believe? Who do you believe? Is this? Getting, a, is uh, it, I mean, Australia is the most atheist country in one of the most atheist countries in the world. Uh, and is this, a, is this a fallout from literally people don't believe in God anymore? They don't know who to believe. They don't, there's a big power vacuum per se. So now everyone can throw their hat in the ring. I mean, politicians are certainly not trustworthy. They are literally from winning votes and they have to go with the majority. They get a poll that say, hey, veterans, uh, we should do a Royal Commission this week um, because it's polling well. And then the next week they'll flip and change their mind. Uh, so... And that's purely on votes. They, you know, they're going to go with the masses. And then, uh, which brings me to another point um, that I wanted to bring up. Um, so Charles, uh, sorry, Christopher Hitchens uh, was a, a great orator and, and he was an anti-theist, like, uh, and he 
also with the Four Horsemen uh, was Richard Dawkins. And Richard Dawkins has been accused of being an elitist uh, because he is saying that maybe not everybody should be allowed to vote. Uh, <laughs> maybe the masses don't know what's good for them and um, when you know lower socioeconomic groups are breeding more than doctors scientists where's the fix to that and then how do we stem this this torrent of, of mistruth perpetrated by social media and, and news outlets Oh my God, Max! Do you really want to go there? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> oh my God. Okay, so let me say this much: there's two sides to every story, and there's no doubt that people who are well informed uh, make better decisions. Of course. Uh, so why shouldn't you have a level of information that someone must have before they determine the plight of a country? Uh, so that's that whole theory about, you know, you shouldn't give the same power of the vote to someone who's misinformed or not informed versus someone who's informed. Okay, that's one argument. The next argument is that as a, as a person who's always been taught by my mum that everyone has something to offer you, uh, and I think that's why I've that's why I, I resonate more with the public than I do with my elitist group of doctor colleagues. And, and that is that sometimes that opinion, sometimes the insight that you get from someone who's not an intellectual uh, is probably more real than someone who is an intellectual. And what I'm saying is that you know, the guy on the street, it's the whole concept of the pub test. Uh, and the pub test basically says, when you go into a pub where you've got some very simple folk, uh, real people, uh, the masses, uh, and you make a statement and it doesn't pass that test, well, that should be the gold standard. Uh, and so those people who Richard says might not, should not get the vote, in many ways, they're the people who I'd like to give the vote to because they're the real people. Uh, and they're not influenced by academia and they're not influenced by intellectualism and, uh, you know, uh, false interests and all that sort of stuff. They're actually real. And, and, uh, and so maybe they sh their vote should be more powerful than the person who intellectualizes or is influenced by money or, you know, is, uh, is in the back pocket of some politician. So there's, there's two sides here. I don't know why you brought that up, Max. That's a really... Uh, that's I don't know. I just thought, I'd, I thought that. This would be a good one. Um, no. <laughs> you, got, you managed to navigate that pretty well. That was that's spot on. <laughs> yeah, look, uh, it, it's that whole thing about male-female equality. You know, if you really want to bring that one up, that's an incredibly controversial subject currently. And that has two sides. You know, there's two sides to every story. Uh, and, you know, with four daughters, like, you know, poor old Scott Morrison got condemned by saying, of course I'm going to be more cognizant and more in touch with women's issues because women are so important in my life. And then some fucking nasty person comes up and says, you know, does that mean you have to have uh, women in your life and daughters to be sensitive? That was fucking bullshit. Yeah. That was just nasty. That was nasty. Scott Morrison was being honest. It was being transparent. 
uh, he'll say, yeah, I might have been a dinosaur in the past. I might have had very sort of sexist opinions in the past, but now that I've been exposed to so many women, I'm more, I'm more uh, in touch. And what's wrong with saying that? I mean, there was a very real, honest statement, and someone condemned him for it. You know, I've got four daughters who, are, who have taught me the importance of female rights. And, you know, I was a dinosaur before them. And I'll be the first to admit it, because uh, I was brought up in an Asian, you know, very, very patriarchal family where my mum was expected to cook three hot meals for my dad. Uh, and so why can't I be more in touch with uh, women because I've been exposed to women? Uh, and, and this lady goes, well, you know, it's a terrible statement because does it mean that uh, we can excuse men who don't have daughters? Well, fuck yeah. You know, if you don't have daughters, if you're not being exposed to women, if you've just been around men all your life, then of course you're not going to be as in touch with uh, women's issues. And, and the same is right with, with any, any particular thing. If you're not part of that environment or in that situation, you, the context and the depth of knowledge in that field is going to be minimal. You get exposed, you oh, have absolutely. kids and daughters, and you're like, ah, that's how they work. You're like... Yeah. yeah, I thought that was terrible that he was condemned for saying that, but yeah, anyway. Do you think that makes them politicians that constantly get... Do you think at, at some point they become completely disconnected with their voter base because of the constant... Bull, they're like, I can't open my fucking mouth. And it gets yeah, everything. I can't be honest. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, the poor bastards. You know, you know that there are... And like you said... I was taught by one, one of my good friends who was a politician. He goes, Charlie, we're in a terrible situation. We all want to make a difference to the world. We want to make a difference to Australia. But how do we do that? Well, we have to be in power. How do we get in power? Well, you've got to be get voted in. How do you get votes? You've got to make popular decisions. If you don't make popular decisions, you don't get the votes. And so oftentimes I make decisions based on, like you said, popularity and getting votes rather than what is they truly believe is best for the nation. And sometimes what is best for the nation is, isn't popular, you know? Uh, so uh, they're stuck between a rock and a hard place, the poor bastards, you know? It's a, it's a, it'd be a terrible job. And that's why, uh, historically, some people say that the best government is a uh, benevolent dictator. Uh, because if you have a dictator who can actually dictate uh, what is best for the country, then uh, sometimes they have to make unpopular decisions, but too bad. You know, that's what has to be done. Of course, they have to be benevolent. They have to have the interests of the country rather than their own interests. And to find someone who is that benevolent is very difficult. But, uh, but right. a benevolent dictator uh, would, would make, you know... Or look at Lee Kuan Yew. <laughs> <laughs> look at Lee Kuan Yew. Uh, you know, a lot of people hate him because he in incarcerated a few people. Uh, who didn't believe in what he had to say. But, but his, his bottom line is that he was in it for the country. He was in it for Singapore. And he made Singapore what it is today, uh, even though he was a, very much a dictator. In one generation, didn't he turn it from a third world country into one of the, well, not leading economies, but getting up there? No, no. It's one of the, in terms of per head of population and fiscal uh, uh, health, uh, the country is, has been in the black for decades and uh, has never been in the red. 
Mm, yeah. It is one of the leading economic nations in the world. Because this conversation's actually come up in the cages a few times about do we just get a, a dictator that's not a dick and do we just get rid of this democracy that doesn't... And, and you see, you, you'd be surprised at the amount of lads who are like, I think we just need someone to make decisions even though they're not popular. And uh, yeah, he's spot on, mate. Yeah, I know. That's why, I mean, that's why Trump got voted in. Trump, you know, Trump didn't... It wasn't a vote for Trump. It was a vote against duplicitous career politicians. That's what it was. And bloody Trump just utilized that and monopolized that. And, and you know, you've got to give him credit. He was smart because he goes, oh, I know how I'm going to get in. I'm going to be on, a, I'm going to adopt a platform that's completely opposite to Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton was all about diplomacy, this and that, and, you know, career politician. And Trump goes, oh, I think that people don't want that anymore. And he was smart enough to, get, you know, to give a narrative that was completely diametrically opposite to, uh, to, uh, to Clinton's. Uh, it was so sad that he was, ended up being a bit of a buffoon. But, uh, you know, if he'd been intelligent and real and if he didn't have all those vested interests and his own interests, he, he, he could have made a real go of America. But unfortunately, uh, uh, history... Did they say because it, it, his policies were, were, were not bad? It was just his ability to... to like you said, he was a bit of a buffoon. Um, but his policies weren't too bad. Uh, in, in a way, if you were going to rank him as a president, he, he's up there with some of the better ones policy-wise, but with his ability to talk and not put himself in the shit, he sort of dropped down a, a fair few rankings. Yeah, look, some people will say that, especially business people. Business people like him. Uh, but, you know, I'm very much an environmentalist, and from an environmentalist point of view, he did so much damage to the world. Uh, you know, sticking his head in the sand uh, when it comes to environmental issues, you know, he should, he will always be condemned for that and, and deservedly so. You know, we have this amazing plan. I mean, here I am talking about all these different th subjects, and I'm not even an expert, but I do have opinions. So, you know, it's your fault, Max. <laughs> 100%, mate. Well, it's Adrian's fault, bringing, you know, taking us down these rabbit holes. But, okay, if you want my opinion about the world, uh, you know, no matter. No matter what the naysayers say, all you've got to do is be a global citizen and travel the world and you will see the effects of global warming and, you know, what we're doing in this world. It's just terrible. Uh, and you can't stick your head in the sand. You've just got to accept it. Uh, and you've got, to, you've got to start making changes so that we protect our world. Uh, that's, that's the biggest picture. And, that, you know, that, that is more important than anything else. I mean, I've gone vegan, I, and I've gone vegan mostly for ethical reasons because I love animals. And uh, poor old pigs and sheep and hens, they all have personalities and they all have feelings and they all feel pain and they all want to live. So, you know, that's the reason I went vegan. But the, but the thing I'm most proud of is that the current consumption of meat is un, unsustainable. Uh, you know, 20,000 litres of water to create one kilogram of beef, you know, that is unsustainable. So by going vegan, I'm making a huge impact on the environment. Uh, I can continue riding my motorbike. I continue driving my car because that has such a minimal effect on the environment compared to the meat industry. Uh, and uh, so, you know, if everyone went vegan, 
you could you could use you could have three or four cars and drive them every day and the the planet will be sustained have you had any uh, detrimental do you feel good i mean because you hear stories of of people feeling awesome bigger going vegan and, and not not ethical like they feel really good for the first sort of six months a year and then they sort of drop off feeling no that's bullshit, bullshit. i feel terrible you know i love meat i just love it uh and my whole life was eating and you know from singapore and chinese family and oh my god i just miss meat every day uh but uh yeah oh my my blood tests are all better you know i was pre-diabetic and that's better i had uh a lesion in my heart that was only less than 25 percent, but that seems to have disappeared so you know you know there's all the health benefits of going vegan sure but no i don't feel better for it. i always felt good anyway uh, so, yeah, I, I'm not doing it for myself. I'm doing it for the animals and for the planet mostly. Uh, but the added benefit is, yeah, it is healthy. It's very healthy to go there. Jess is going to love this. Uh, one of our office girls, she's a, she's an absolute advocate. She's an ethical vegan as well. Um, she's going to love this, mate. We're not going to hear the end of it. <laughs> well, you, all you guys should go vegan. I'm telling you, it's, it's good for you. It's actually good for you, good for the planet, good for everyone. And I can see Keegan there's got a dog. He obviously loves animals. Yeah, don't and eat your dog, so, Keegan. You know, the intelligence of that dog and the feeling of that dog is not dissimilar to that of a She's too stringy. So, She's too stringy and old. I wouldn't eat her anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but Keegan, I bet you eat pork. And those poor little piggies, they have the same feelings. and so, They have the intelligence of a three- or four-year-old child. Uh, and we keep them in we keep them in pens. We keep them in uh, in these terrible confinements where they get ulcers, they can't move, and then we eat them. It's just uh, God, why do they have to be so delicious? <laughs> maybe I'll give it a go. Maybe I'll do a after this. I'll give maybe I'll give a little six week vegan run at it. Who knows? Don't Adrian, will, yeah, I'll be fired. You watch. Hey, don't go off cold t- turkey because you'll fail. So I tried a few years ago to go vegetarian cold turkey, and uh, it, I failed miserably. You do it one meat at a time. So first meat, get rid of pork, okay? Just get no pork at all. Next one, six months later or three months later or three weeks later, get rid of beef. Next week, get rid of chicken. Next week, get, you know, get rid of dairy products. Now, the dairy industry is crueler than the meat industry. So if you can get rid of dairy products, you're going to lose weight immediately. You're going to feel healthier. And those poor old uh, cows that are raped and inseminated and fucking treated terribly, at least you'll save some of them. Fuck. You, all, all this is doing is making me hungry. It's nine in the morning. And all I'm about <laughs> now is bacon. <laughs> so, but, but outside of um, that for nutrition and, and I just want to know, like a look in the brain of, of someone who's at the elite level is... And what you go through before going into surgery to save someone's life, is there a process that you do, like meditation? Is there things that you won't do the night before because it would, you know, I'm not saying you're not going to go out and swing off a bottle of whiskey the night before. I don't know. Is it? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Uh, No, absolutely. I mean, look, I treat my patients like they were a member of my own family. So, would I want my surgeon to be a big, fat, unfit, drinking guy? Absolutely not. 
I want, I'd want him to be at his peak physical condition when he's doing my brain tumor, which could take him up to six to 12 hours to take out. And so he has to be in his peak physical condition. If he isn't, then he's not giving me his best shot at this. So it's my responsibility to my patients to be as fit as I can be and as focused as I can be. So yeah, I never drink alcohol, I don't drink alcohol anyway, but uh, I always make sure I get a good night's sleep the night before. Uh, I make sure that I get in early to the operating room and stay focused and I look at the x-rays. My, all my staff know that they can't interrupt me when I'm you know, getting in the zone. Uh, and then I, uh, and then I you know, maintain a fitness regime so I can operate for hours and hours at an end and not get tired. Uh, and physically do it. So, you know, I keep very fit. I'm 64 years old, but I'm, you know, I, I still go paddling in the mornings. Uh, I walk to work. I, uh, Mate, I thought you were 40 something. Yeah, no, no, no. I'm, you know, I, uh, again, I think it's my responsibility to my patients to stay, stay fit. So, yeah. You know, How do you. I know we're completely different, and that's why I'm not a, a brain surgeon or a neurosurgeon, uh, whatever. Um, I'm a fucking monkey. I couldn't. 12 hours, I'd be bored after half. I'd cut the brain open. I'd be like, yep, I uh, might go get a brew. Um, how the fuck do you do it for 12 hours? Yeah, well, you know, you, you work your way up. I mean, yeah, when I first, I can remember doing a 26-hour operation when I was in America. And uh, I was buggered after that. Like, I mean, I took a whole day off after that. Uh, but now if I did a 26-hour operation, I, sh- I, I, I know that I'd take off two or three days. There's just no way I could do it. Because uh, I, you know, I did a 12-hour operation not so long ago, and that sort of you know, you know, made me tired for the next day or so. But, so you do get used to it. You do reach a, your peak, physical peak. And after that, a lot of experience, you know, a lot of it is experience and, you know, knowing how to pace yourself and things like that. But uh, it's a job like any other job, you know. I'm sure people say to you, you know, how do you... No. How do you do it? <laughs> <laughs> you know. it, it involves with drinking, but uh, they're like, I don't know how you drink four litres. And you're like, well, I'm not allowed to anymore because it ruins your brain. So I'm not allowed to eat pork and I'm not allowed to drink and I'm not allowed to smoke cigarettes. So I don't know what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. <laughs> not allowed to do those things because we work for a proactive mental health charity. Um, so... So you twelve hours? Is that this guy's brains cut open, girl, whoever? Do you have breaks? Like what is going on in there when that's? It's very hard to take a break because you get uh, you get on a roll and it's like that game of concentration where you turn over a few cards and then you turn them back over again. You got to remember where they are. Uh, well, when you're operating on a brain tumor, you're operating on different areas of the tumor and, you know, you might get some bleeding in that area. So you, you pack it off and you stop and you go to another area. And so if you take a break, you kind of lose your train of thought and you, you, you lose your, you know, you lose that momentum. So with that 26-hour operation, for example, I took a break at midnight and went out, went to the toilet, sat down, uh, to eat something, and then unfortunately, the surgeon who took over uh, got into some bleeding troubles and 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 called me back in again. So uh, I don't think he would have got into those 
well, I wouldn't have gone into those bleeding troubles because I knew exactly where that blood vessel was. So, yeah, I, I now don't take breaks. I just go all the way through, however long it takes. That's mental. Do you- it is crazy, you know, because it uh, it's a skill that we develop and that we, uh, you know, that you have to do to, you know, to do brain surgery. It's just one of those, one of those things. And I can remember watching a game of tennis once with Nadal and uh, Djokovic. Well, it could have been no, Djokovic and Federer. Anyway, whatever it was, it went for like six hours. And I can remember the commentator going, oh, my God, these people, they're just such amazing athletes and they've got amazing levels of fitness and, and here they are, you know, playing tennis for six hours. How can anyone do that? And I thought, you fucking, you know, <laughs> you idiot. You don't realise that I'm operating like this with my arms up, looking down a microscope with someone's life in my hands for 12 hours without sitting down every five minutes for a cup, you know, for a staminate and a little break. You're there the entire time standing up with your arms up like this, uh, concentrating. And, you know, and I thought, oh, well, that, you know, that, that degree of athleticism is what we display every day. And it's not, no one ever pays us millions of dollars for no, it. No, I think this is a good point. Um, uh so I was thinking about this the other day and we used to talk about uh, and I was thinking about uh, court jesters and um, gladiators in the old days. They were just literally entertainment for the masses and then they might die, they might get fed to lions uh, or you might throw things at them. And then the tables have turned where now you're getting uh, young football dudes who, who don't have much to offer the world like they are con- the NRL is constantly getting in trouble for being a Man, little you're bit you're going to get in so much trouble with this podcast <laughs> <laughs> oh now no no sportsman's ever going to listen to your podcast again yeah <laughs> we've got an ambassador to that hopefully hopefully he'll spin it around for us but I don't know why we pay and idolise these you know sports stars um and movie stars is the big one for me movie stars I'm like why do you get to have a political why do you get to have a political say why you're literally a, uh, a court jester we pay you to make us laugh or cry or f- you know feel things i don't need you to um, talk to me about the economic crisis of the world or the <laughs> do, you know, do you know what i mean and like we said like we, there's there's people uh, there was a lady that was one of the first she's going up in into space as she was doing i can't remember i know it super sucks uh she was doing something really important and on the same day um I think Cardi B released a new single and she was twerking at the Emmys or something. And she got all this coverage, whereas this girl who'd studied her whole life to be an astronaut to go to space to do this groundbreaking, nothing. We're literally focused on that particular sect of people. It perplexes yeah. and pisses me off. Yeah. Well, everything's relative, you know. Like here you are interviewing me as if I'm some sort of celebrity. And, you know, my scientist that works his butt off for minimal pay, he came and he comes in at midnight to take some brain tumor off me so we can grow it in the lab. That poor bastard doesn't get any recognition, you know, and uh, which is really sad because he has devoted his life for the betterment of mankind to try and find a cure for brain cancer. And there he is slaving away in a little lab somewhere, you know, getting paid, you know, like just above poverty wage and, uh, no, and no recognition. And he's the one that we should be, you know, lauding as a as a you know as one of mankind's greatest assets so everything is relative uh i think 
you've got to understand that these people are getting paid millions of dollars for their uniqueness. So, you know, Brad Pitt, there's no other Brad Pitt. So that's why it's only Brad Pitt. He can't employ someone to do what he does. He can't, uh, you know, so it's him. And uh, that's why he gets paid the big bickies. But similarly, someone who takes out uh, a brain tumour that no one else in the world can take out, well, they, they can't be duplicated. So, you know, I think they, they should probably get the same amount of uh, uh, credit as uh, as someone who's a unique uh, actor, yeah, I, I just I, I think that I'd have to disagree. I think someone who's a brain surgeon who is literally saves people's lives would, if there wasn't Brad Pitt, there Hollywood would cast somebody else, some other good-looking dude who just decides to eat in all his scenes as his little hack for being a good actor. They'll find some other pretty-looking dude. I don't know about brain surgeons and and people sending people to Mars. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, well, like, let's get off that subject next. <laughs> I'll bring it I back. I don't want to piss off every uh, elite sportsman, every actor, every person who gets paid a lot of money for their uniqueness. And uh, But, yeah, you're right. Society does applaud uh, some funny groups. of. Oh, look, just look at influencers. Oh, my God. You know, look at the power and the money that influencers get paid. And sometimes it's, all they're doing is just taking selfies that, and they have... Uh, you know, they know how to Photoshop well. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> problem. Just um, mm. jumping back quickly to, to when you're doing long surgeries, do you allow yourself to, to take caffeine? No. Adrian, no. No, no. Caffeine is a CNS stimulant, a central nervous system stimulant. It's a, it's a known drug containing xanthine. It uh, stimulates the central nervous system and it therefore gives you a micro tremor. Sometimes it even gives you a macro tremor where you can actually see someone get a tremor after they drink coffee. Yeah, we so every morning. So looking at a microscope and everything's magnified and you drink a cup of coffee, uh, I'm telling you. When my residents and my fellows, when I'm teaching them and I let them operate down un- under the microscope, if they've drunk coffee, I can tell because uh, they have this fine little tremor. So there's, no, I mean, I, you, you brought up stamina, but there's outside of stamina, that's 26 hours. What was that? Yeah, no, no, the nurses bring a glass of water for me. Uh, so, is that interference? From, can you hear interference? Yeah. That's oh, there we go. Uh, yeah, so, you know, I'll drink some water out of a straw or I'll bring some. Before I got pre-diabetes, they used to bring in, you know, lollies and things like that. But now they just bring in some nuts sort of that I chew on or... and. Uh, Yes, sometimes you need, but sometimes, you know, the adrenaline's pumping, you're so focused, you don't even feel hungry until the operation's over, and then you start feeling hungry. It's like, you know, going to the toilet. You'd think you'd have to go to the toilet after 12 hours, but you don't. Somehow the body knows that you can't do it, so it concentrates the urine, and, uh, yeah, you you don't actually go to the toilet until you finish, and then then it's it's like pissing out molasses. It's terrible, but, uh, but the body's an amazing organ that can actually put things on hold for you. Yeah, is that is that that's a function? Is it so? I mean, I've done that when we've been out field with with the military, and um, there I knew there wasn't going to be anywhere to stop for the next day to to go to the toilet, and subconsciously I just never got the urge. But then I al- always noticed that I was pissing thick and stinky. <laughs> well, thanks for sharing that with us, but. Uh... But it's just not dissimilar to a footballer who breaks his leg and continues playing football. <laughs> and then at the end, he realizes his leg's broken. Mm. And, uh, yeah. yeah. So uh, 
it's the it's we're, we're back the full circle we're back now to the power of the mind the mind is amazing it's absolutely amazing that it can do that it can secrete opiates opioids like endorphins and keflins it's basically blunt out and block out pain until uh, until there's time to accept that you've got pain it's crazy mm. it's the same reason why people who are dying from cancer you know if they if they want to stay alive for a wedding anniversary or christmas they do and then they die after christmas or die after the event mm. it, it happens so often that they actually keep themselves alive until they're ready to go how does that happen i mean it's inexplicable when it comes to medical science it's, it's all about the power of the mind uh, I'd try and input as you can as you can probably hear. I'm in Darwin and we've got a, a mon- it sounds like it's a torrential rainstorm crashing overhead. Oh, so, but uh, so hopefully if it gets too bad, I'll just mute out and let Adrian uh, round us out. Is that okay? Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, I've I've only got one major last question that I need to get out to to bring it back uh, to to what we we're talking about before, as in things that can keep your mind younger, healthier, and and happier. Supplements. There's there's a kind of Nootropic or nootropic, however you pronounce it, it's 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 a they're going off at the moment. Their popularity is going through the roof. They're all over um, social media as products to buy. Have would you recommend any, or is there any other supplements that you would recommend that that are great for your brain? So if you go vegan, uh, you won't get enough vitamin B twelve. So that's a supplement a vegan has to take to maintain health. If you're uh, non-vegan, then virtually every essential amino acid, essential fatty acid, essential protein, or essential vitamin is in a normal diet. Uh, And so all those things are in a vegan diet as well, except for B12. But uh, but in a in a non-vegan diet, there's it's very rare for you have to supplement your diet with it. So I'm a great believer in trying to be a little bit more natural, and I don't like introducing stimulants or no. I've only ever taken Panadol twice in my life, and I don't like antibiotics and stuff. So I'm very much uh, different to the majority of people where I actually try and heal myself and try and uh, be a little bit more natural with uh, with things. So, no, look, I'm not an authority on, authority on it, but as a general rule, I don't believe in uh, 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 supplements. Yeah, right. As you... Remember, everything has side effects too, you know. You know, there's a thing called vit- hypono- hypervitaminosis A and D. So people who take multivitamins and, and uh, you know, bulk up on vitamins... Sometimes taking too many vitamins can cause uh, pretty serious conditions. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm a strong believer in trying to be as natural as possible. Hmm. Well, that's a bugger. Well, having said that, you know, then, of course, the critics come out and go, well, you know, the cavemen used to eat meat, so why can't we eat meat? And, well, you know, slavery used to be accepted. That's that's the ethical side of it. I mean, I've I've tried a couple of different diets. Nutrition was kind of my focus for for nearly a decade, and I've tried two weeks eating vegan. I I broke out. I had like autoimmune response and had like rashes everywhere. 
I don't know it's because more than likely too many legumes but I've convinced myself that my body requires meat at <laughs> some level and the, I mean the, 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 okay so so nutrition well as you know the strongest man in the world is a vegan so you know joke uh uh, Djokovic is a vegan. I mean, some great athletes are vegans. So, you know, you don't need meat. You actually don't need it. Uh, but, you know, I, I will accept this. I will accept that some people are different to others. And, yeah, so the, the fact that you came out in that those rashes, I think that's probably, you know, you're not bullshitting. It's real. And so, it's, you know, you probably can't tolerate that high dose of like, but you know you could actually build up to it again that whole that whole concept of not doing it cold turkey just do it slowly i think you'd do a whole lot better by doing it that way yeah mate certainly some challenging um ideas i'm gonna have to give it a go i'm gonna give it a go mate i'll let you know how i go charlie <clears throat> give it a go um mate I just want to say thanks for coming on and uh, I mentally, I couldn't keep up quick enough. I was furiously typing in the background to Adrian and Keegan, uh, the, the wealth of knowledge coming on. I think I think our audience is going to get a lot out of it, mate, and it was great for you to take. I know you're busy um, and I think our audience is going to get a lot out of it, mate, and we'd like to uh, keep getting you on if you're keen to come on and uh, maybe dispel myths as they come up in, in the social space or... Um, if you're keen to be involved with with Swiss Aid, mate, we'd we'd love to have you. Oh, I love it. I love the whole concept of Swiss Aid. You know, I looked at your website; it's fantastic. It's uh, it's absolutely much needed, and uh, so I congratulate you on your efforts with that. I mean, you could have easily just come back and forgotten about your colleagues and uh, the whole concept of mental health, but uh, the fact that you've taken it by the balls and you're doing something about it is very commendable. And uh, yeah, so a- anything I can do. Uh, I'd be very happy to help out. Thanks, mate. Um, have you got anything coming up uh, in in the in your calendar that we can sort of spruik out on our on our socials, or anything coming up for you with your foundation? Or well, that'd be lovely. The Charlie Teo Foundation raises money for brain cancer research. Uh, brain cancer kills more children in Australia than any other disease. Not only any other cancer, but any other disease it kills more young adults than any other cancer. Uh, and the Charlie Teo Foundation runs Lean and Mean. We have very low overheads and we fund disruptive uh, thinkers, people who think outside the box, and we, ha- we are very, very dependent on grassroots fundraising. Our next big fundraiser is May the 1st, which is a, a, a dinner that we have. We have to limit the numbers, but if you'd like to support the foundation and uh, those people suffering from brain cancer, we'd love to see you there you just have to go to the website the charlie Teo foundation website no worries thanks very much mate and uh we'll get everyone to have a look and we'll, we'll spruik that over all of our social channels mate thanks very much thank you cheers mate thank you cheers.